This is a Rooster Teeth production. October 31st, 1996. TAM Flight 402, a Fokker 100 regional jet with 95 people on board, is taking off from Sao Paulo, Brazil, bound for Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. During the takeoff roll, warning lights illuminate, letting the crew know that the autothrottle is not functioning. The captain calmly, manually takes control of the throttle and continues with the takeoff. 50 feet off the ground, the number two engine throttle moves to idle and the plane begins banking to the right. The first officer fights with the throttles and gets the number two engine back to full power. The number two engine keeps rolling back to idle, but the first officer keeps fighting it. However, the captain is unable to regain control of the plane as it continues banking right and crashes into a crowded neighborhood, killing all on board as well as four people on the ground. Why did the throttle keep rolling back to idle? Was this the reason the plane crashed? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. Uh, it's Gus and Chris. Hello, Chris. Hello. We have another uh, incident that occurred on Halloween. We've had a few recently uh, that occurred yeah. on October 31st. Not by any... Not, no, we're not picking these on purpose to be mm-hmm. around Halloween. It's just a coincidence. Uh, Dennis pointed out that this is our third here recently that's been uh, on October 31st. You know, that makes it spookier. Ooh, spooky. If we're not doing it intentionally. J- I don't, uh, for the record, I don't believe in <laughs> coincidences. <laughs> I don't I don't think it's a cursed day to fly or anything like that. It just no, no. happens to be a weird coincidence. There's something that could be haunting <laughs> us specifically. Oh, gotcha. Before we get started, as always, I want to remind you to give us a follow on social media at Black Box Down Pod on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. You can see pictures of things that we talk about and you can see pictures of uh, our merch. We just had some new merch come out here very recently featuring the autopilot little guy from uh, our aviation explanation videos. I think it's great. We got a shirt, mug, decal. I think they're all great. I think the shirt, the shirt's so soft. It feels great. It's embroidered. It's like really high quality. Love it. Yeah. And and the uh, even if you haven't seen the uh, autopilot guy, the mug is really cute it's like a little autopilot thing it says running on autopilot so yeah it's like you drink it in the morning with your, <laughs> when you're it makes sense. like i am right now <laughs> uh i finished my coffee already i'm uh i finished before i sat down on my desk but yeah great mug anyway that's neither here nor there right now we're talking about tam flight 402 there was a little bit of confusion i had that i want to mention real fast at the top regarding this airline uh-huh you know tam it's t-a-m this airline eventually became LATAM, L-A-T-A-M, which I think we've talked about in another episode before. And it actually has like a really long name because I think that, again, this was confusing. There were different airlines operated by this TAM group. (laughs) Uh, Uh This one specifically is TAM Transportes Eros Regionice Flight 402. They also had another TAM called Taxi Aero Maria. they Goodness, were two different entities, <laughs> two different entities, but they both belong to the TAM group. So this one, I just want to get this out of the way. This was Transportes Eros Regionis, which eventually became part of LATAM later. Okay. Or I guess rebranded or whatever. They're LATAM. <laughs> they became LATAM. <laughs> anyway, that was, it was just, it was just a little confusing. And, uh, you know, normally I'd like to clear that stuff up at the top. So if I say TAM, that's what I'm talking about. So this was a passenger flight from Sao Paulo. It was actually going to, uh, I don't know how to say it, Recife, Brazil, but it was Mm -hmm. stopping at uh, Rio de Janeiro. So this specific flight was going from Sao Paulo to Rio and then was going to continue on back October 31st, 1996. The flight was crewed by Captain Jose Antonio Moreno, who was 35 years old with 6,433 hours of flight time. And First Officer Ricardo Luis Gomez, who was 27 years old with 3,000 flight hours. The aircraft used was a Fokker 100 with 8,171 hours, and there were four flight attendants and 89 passengers on board. I think this is the this might be the first incident we've covered uh-huh. in the Fokker 100 plane. I was going to say, that name, I don't think we've talked about. <laughs> it, yeah, it, it wasn't a terribly popular plane. There were only 283 of them built between 1986 and 1997, and uh, it's it looks kind of like... Mm, it's a regional jet, right? So it's got, in this particular plane, has the two engines at the back of the fuselage, kind of like a, an MD-80. They're not, the, the engines are not under the wings. And it's a little smaller, kind of, you know, it's a regional jet, kind of like a, yeah. a CRJ or an Embraer. Anyway, the engines, back of the plane, not under the wings. Just, we're, we're talking about the engines at the intro, so just trying to get you to, to picture what it looks like in mm. your head. Okay. 
Fokker was a Dutch aircraft manufacturer. Mm-hmm. I really, I was familiar with them because of the work that they had done years, years, years ago, back in World War One. <laughs> like that's that they, they used to be around for a long time. Uh, they went defunct actually in 1996, but they made a lot of like the the plane that the you know the Red Baron from World that's War. That's what I was just looking at. Yeah, <laughs> the the plane that the Red Baron flew was a Fokker. Like these were very iconic planes back then. So it was a it was an aircraft company that had a long history and had been around for a long time. Eventually, you know, they went bankrupt and they don't really exist anymore. But the Fokker mm-hmm. 100 was kind of like their last attempt at you know one of their last attempts at trying to gain relevance mm. or regain. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> regain relevance. Uh, I guess gain modern relevance. You know, people aren't strapping Gatling guns to the nose of their plane and flying around anymore that's <laughs> you don't make a lot of money that way anymore uh, unless you're you know boeing or northrop grumman anyway so flight 402 received clearance to depart sao paulo at 8 26 a.m and during the initial acceleration on the runway the captain mm-hmm. announced the actuation of the takeoff go around switch and the first officer confirmed everything was in a normal condition so you know that means they're going to go max power you know max throttle and mm-hmm. you know they're they're attempting to take off Four seconds after that initial acceleration, there was a beep sound in the cockpit. And the captain said, hey, this is what? It's out, see? And the first officer replied with manual. What happened was one of the two autothrottle channels had been disconnected. But, you know, according to the report, something like this doesn't require correction. This isn't a big deal. Uh-huh. They just have to manually control the throttle at this point. And it's just going, it's just max, right? Yeah. So, so they just like, all the way. It. Yeah. The captain then said, autothrottle is out. At 8.26 and 10 seconds, two beeps sounded, and the captain repeated again that the auto throttle was out. The first officer then said, thrust check, which is like confirming that takeoff thrust has been adjusted and checked, you know? They look, okay. and yeah, maximum thrust. So, you know, auto throttle's out, thrust check, yep, it's good. So they, you know, they continue. And they rotated at 8.26 and 34 seconds at a speed of 131 knots, which is about 151 miles an hour or 243 kilometers an hour. So shortly after takeoff, there were some knocks recorded on the cockpit voice recorder. And at 8.26 and 36 seconds, the EPR for engine number two started dropping from 1.69 to 1.34. And we've mentioned before, EPR is just like a a thrust rating. So the fact that it's going down from 1.69 to 1.34 indicates that engine two is starting to give less thrust. Okay. The first officer let out an exclamation. And over the next few seconds, the plane started rolling to the right at about three degrees per second, reaching 11.2 degrees. The crew is able to counter this by inputting left rudder and using aileron movements. At 8.26 and 40 seconds, the first officer said, it's locked. The report notes that this is likely referring to the throttle lever for engine number two, which was now at idle. So Hmm. engine one is still at max power because they're taking off. The lever for engine two has gone all the way down to idle. And -hmm. the first officer has said, it's locked. And there's just the two engines. Correct. It's a two engine. They don't have a third. Yeah, no third, no fourth, just two. Engine 1 went to 1.328 EPR, and Engine 2 went to 1.133, so they're both rolling down a little bit. And at 8.36 and 44 seconds, one of the pilots said, turn it off up there, auto throttle, pull here. And the EPR for Engine 2 started to rise again as the lever was brought forward, but then it, it quickly reduced to idle again. So presumably, they're you know, trying to disable the auto throttle. They think that the auto throttle is maybe kicking in and messing with the, the throttle. So they're, they're trying to disable it and, you know, bring okay. the engine back up. At this time, the plane also pitched 1.55 degrees nose down. It doesn't sound like much, but remember, they just took off. They're not very high off the ground. Mm-hmm. A few seconds later, the first officer indicates that the auto throttle system was already off. Oh. You remember, they had, they had even said it yeah. before, off, you know, yeah. off. And, you know, the, and the throttle for two is acting up. Their captain's saying, you know, or someone's saying, turn it off, auto throttle. And they're like, it's already off. Oh, no. Uh, oh, no. Then both throttle levers were pushed forward again, and both engines exceeded 1.724 EPR. So they're getting thrust again out of both engines. The captain repeated, turn off up there here also, referring to the auto throttle control switch. The speed started to deteriorate at two knots per second, and the stick shaker sounded at 8.26 and 55 seconds. Mm-hmm. Two seconds later, the aircraft suddenly banked 39 degrees to the right, oh, and the wow. ground proximity warning system started sounding. Is that because one of the engines isn't powering at all and it doesn't have a balance, uh, you know, thrust? Yeah, they call that asymmetrical thrust. Yes, that's that's what I was searching for. <laughs> it's like, uh... So presumably that's what it sounds like, right? Mm-hmm. Engine number two, which is the engine on the right, 
it keeps rolling back to idle. They're fighting to get it going. And the plane's banking and going to the right, which you would expect when you're only getting thrust from the left side. Yeah. So yeah, you're right. You're, you're on the right track. That's entirely what it sounds like. In planes like this, the asymmetric thrust is not as, it, it's still there, but it's not as pronounced. Since the engines aren't out under the wings, the engines are close to each other at the back of the fuselage. Yeah. So it's not mm, as severe. As bad, yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. But it, do, it, it does still exist. The flight then crashed at 8.27 and one second, hitting several houses and buildings, killing everyone on board and four people on the ground. There's actually, a, uh, like I said, you know, this was 8.26 in the morning. There's actually a, a, a crazy photo uh, from this incident. I'll, I'll, let me make a note. I'll post this on our social media. There's a crazy photo of the landing gear in someone's bed. Oh, my God. Uh, right? It's That's- like... Luckily, they had gotten up, you know, they had started their day, but like the landing gear was in their bed where presumably they were asleep just a little bit before this. Oh, that's terrifying. Oh, my God. (laughs) Can you here? I want to see that photo. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, if you think about like even how a landing gear gets into a home to land on a bed, I mean, it destroyed a wall. (laughs) Like everything in the room is destroyed. Yeah. And And it landed on their bed. And I mean, it destroyed the bed too. I mean, the landing gear is really heavy. Yeah. And even for a, a smaller plane, right? A regional plane, that's a really, that's, those are big wheels. Well, I, <laughs> I mean, mean these, I know they, yeah, these are yeah. Reg, regional planes, but they're still, I mean, a ton of people are on them. Uh, <laughs> they're still, yeah. you know, really big planes. That landing gear, you might call that the leg. What is that? Uh, like the strut that's holding it. Yeah. I mean, that's like twice. The size of that dude standing next yeah, to there, it. Yeah, there is a man uh, standing by the, the wheel. The wheel itself is like half the size of the of the guy. And yeah, the strut is like bigger than he is. Uh, yeah, it's uh, absolutely crazy the amount of damage that it did. Okay, so this is a, a good time to give you a warning, Chris. Uh-oh. This report was very technical and very thorough and required... Like, it was... More technical than we were used to. It deals, it's going to deal with a lot of electronics. So um, I did my best to try to learn everything that's going on. I'm going to do my best to try to convey it. But please, if you have questions, let's dive into it and you know, dig into okay. it and try, to, and try to unravel this together. Also, this was a weird report. You know, obviously, you know, it was, it, this incident happened in Brazil. Uh, it was not an American-made plane. So the NTSB was not involved at all. So the report was in Portuguese, uh, had to get translated and... They just do their reports a little differently there. Like, for example, uh, the report didn't list any altitudes where things happened. But I think uh, they eventually figured out that this everything started going wrong about 50 feet off of the ground. So, 50, yeah, just just trying to set it up now that uh, it, this, this might come across a little different than a typical episode. I'm ready. <laughs> so, like I said, NTSB was not involved. The investigation was carried out by the Aeronautical Accidents Investigation and Prevention Center, or SANIPA. And they were told by witnesses that the right engine reverser had opened during the flight. And we've talked about these before. The reverser is the thrust reverser. Mm, for landing. Right. There's a bunch of different ways that these things work. But essentially, in this case, it's like a little bucket that opens that redirects the thrust so that instead of propelling the plane forward, it makes the thrust kind of go in the opposite direction. Yeah, forward so that the plane slows down. Which would explain... That's like the asymmetrical thrust like on steroids yes yes it would be like if you in your car had separate brakes for the left and the right tires and you were accelerating on your left tires and slamming on the brakes on your right tires oh man (laughs) i mean that would make you do circle right right yeah like you'd go you'd go to the (laughs) left uh, which is you know what happened in to this Mm. plane except they have a third dimension they also have you know, verticality to worry about. And that's why, you know, they ended up going yeah. down there. You know, the things slow down on the right side. You don't have as much lift. You dip down and uh, ended up crashing. So, you know, of course, we've said before, eyewitnesses, very unreliable. Mm-hmm. We've covered this extensively. People say they see explosions on planes or they see stuff on fire. And then the investigation's like, yeah, that, that actually didn't happen. So, of course, the investigators get told that eyewitnesses on the ground saw that right engine reverser open. So they're going to look into that. So, you know, they look at the hydraulic system for the reversers and they have two vital components. One of these components is the thrust reverser selector valve. And they tested and inspected it and they concluded there was no operational anomaly in this part that, had, that contributed to the opening of the reverser. The other component is the thrust reverser actuator, but the actuators were also found to be fully operational. Hmm. So a technician from Fokker prepared a hypothesis that says that the high resistance of one of the switches for an actuator might have reduced the performance 
of the open-closed limit relay, sending spurious signals to the selector valve's open-closed solenoids. So basically saying that there was a high amount of electrical resistance on the switch, and maybe it was, it's not quite short-circuiting, but maybe it was causing the thrust reverser to get faulty signals. Oh, like... Like it was kind of being overloaded maybe, and just kind uh-huh. of like wasn't, you know, getting a full proper signal. Hmm. And and then because it was like getting, it, it didn't know what the signal was and it was saying, open, go. Yeah, or like you know. like a weak open signal or then like a weak closed signal like that, you know, mm. where it's like, it, like uh, it's not the same thing, but maybe like a flickering light where it's like, yeah, it's on, but it's not all the way on. It's kind of on, kind of off. But it shouldn't have been on in the first place, right? Correct. Yeah. So and again, this is a hypothesis. They don't know. Like they're looking at the parts and they're like, the parts are fine. What else could it be? So there's, there's an engineer, you know, from Fokker, from the aircraft manufacturer, who's like trying to figure out, well, is it possible for this to happen? And this hypothesis also showed that a fault in the energized position of the section lock relay engine two. So this fault would not cause the reverser to open, but it would inhibit a warning to be sent to the cockpit if the opening did occur. So they're saying like this other fault doesn't necessarily make the reverser open, but if this fault happened, there would be no warning in the cockpit saying that this was happening. So it's like, <laughs> now like we talk about like the Swiss cheese model and how lots of things need to go wrong for a crash uh-huh. to happen. It's like, well, theoretically, you know, this could have caused the reverser to maybe not be all the way closed, maybe be opening a little bit. And mm-hmm. also it would disable the warning in the cockpit that would let the pilots know this was happening. That is like one thing that does a lot of problems. Right, yeah. So the switches for the lock actuators were tested, and one of them showed an extremely high resistance of 357 ohms, and the normal resistance value would not exceed 0.7 ohms. And the other actuator tested had a maximum resistance of 0.5 ohms, so this is kind of falling along that that hypothesis. Like, oh, there was a lot of resistance on this side, and this would account for the crew not being notified that the thrust reverser had deployed. Yeah. With HelloFresh, you get farm-fresh pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Skip trips to the grocery store. Count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. That's why it's America's number one meal kit. You can savor every last second of summer with HelloFresh. HelloFresh delivers fresh, quality produce from farm to your door in less than a week, allowing you to enjoy the delicious flavors of the season right from home. Skip the trip to the grocery store. Spend more time soaking up the last of the summer sun. HelloFresh Market is a one-stop shop for all your mealtime needs with a curated selection of quick breakfast, lunch, snacks, desserts, and more. Plus, on top of that, HelloFresh's quick and easy recipes, 20-minute meals, and low-prep, low-cleanup options provide an even faster route to putting food on the table around your packed schedule. I'm a big fan of HelloFresh. Uh, it's Not only is it a time saver, Everything's really delicious. I, I I feel like it's a quick project that's super easy to do. It takes me about 30 minutes. You lay out all of my ingredients, put it all together. Then at the end, you get to eat it, and it's so good. You feel really, really accomplished. So go to HelloFresh.com slash BlackBoxDown16. Use code BlackBoxDown16 for 16 free meals across seven boxes and three free gifts. That's BlackBoxDown and the number one and the number six. So HelloFresh.com slash BlackBoxDown16. Code BlackBoxDown16. Make sure you use the code. Uh, go to our special URL. That way, you know they they know that uh, Black Box Down sent you. It's like a, a little way. Give them a little wink. We all know life's best moments happen around a roaring fire, and a smokeless fire pit from Solar Stove makes your outdoor moments even more memorable. Instead of having to constantly dodge campfire fumes, you can sit back, relax, and actually enjoy the fire. Sometimes it's nice to just get outside and you know maybe not go too far. You stay stay around the home and you know light, light a nice fire to uh, to keep things uh, popping as it were outside. And uh, solar stove is a great way to help you do that. If you're worried about smoky fumes ruining a good time, I got to tell you, solar stove is a champ when it comes to that. The smokeless design is amazing. Really cuts that down. You don't have to worry about you know going back in smelling like a, a stack of burned up firewood. Uh, plus, on top of that, it's super easy to light you just get it going in just a couple minutes uh can't can't say enough good things about that so upgrade your backyard with a solo stove fire pit and create story worthy moments without the fireside fumes it's got stainless steel construction designed to regulate airflow burn more efficiently so little smoke you wonder how there's so much fire uh it's perfect catalyst for getting outside spending more time with family and friends and you can build lasting memories around a solo stove fire pit they're so easy to use. They're built to last, easy to light with a few bits of starter. Your fire is blazing in minutes, and they're so confident you'll love it. They offer a lifetime warranty and 30-day free return policy. Right now, you can get big discounts on all fire pits during Solo Stove's summer sale. Use promo code BLACKBOXDOWN at solostove.com for an extra $10 off. 
That's solostove.com, promo code BLACKBOXDOWN, for $10 off on top of their incredible summer sale discounts. So just to be clear, you know, I mentioned uh-huh. a solenoid, you know, as part of this signaling system. And a solenoid is like a device that converts electrical energy into mechanical work. It's like an oh. electromagnet that's formed. You've probably seen them before. If you ever like take apart like little, like when I was a kid, I used to take apart my like electronic toys all the time, like little cars mm-hmm. and stuff. Now I do it with my, my, my air conditioner. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's the adult version. It's much more expensive. Like a solenoid is just like a kind of electromagnet that's formed by a coil of wire whose length is greater than its diameter, which generates a controlled magnetic field. Okay. You've probably seen these like in various electronics at some point, mm-hmm. but just think of it as like it's converting electrical energy into mechanical work, like a little motor. You could think of it that way. Okay. So when the aircraft was certified in Brazil, the electrical system was set up in a way where the open-closed solenoid of the thrust reverser selector valve was always energized. This meant that the thrust reverser actuator was pressurized to keep the shells closed, except upon landing where the command would be reversed. So, okay, it's constantly giving power saying to keep it closed? Correct. But then when it lands... Stops giving it power so that it opens? it opens. Correct. Hmm. Okay, so I'm starting to see how if it's not getting enough power, well, and it's not. I know it sounds bad, but I'm trying to give uh, like a, a more accessible analogy, and I think I have one. So you know the brakes in your car, right? Mm-hmm. And of course, uh, it's coincidental that it's brakes. It's it does. It's I'm not saying this because of thrust reverser or anything. Okay. You know, you press the brakes in your car and the car brakes, right? Yeah. It's because when you press, you're creating uh, a pressure in the brake fluid and the brake fluid, you know, compresses on your calipers and the brakes activate. Did you know in like big trucks, like in big commercial vehicles, the opposite is true? That, that do they have? Mm-hmm. The, the thought is, so like you need, in your car, you need brake fluid. You press on the brakes and the brake fluid helps activate, you know, the calipers to, to activate your brake. In like a commercial vehicle or in a big vehicle, the default is if there's no pressure, brake. Oh. So that if there's a cut in the brake lines or if the brake lines fail or if there's no brake fluid, the brakes activate and stop the vehicle. Does that mean that whenever they're driving, they have to like, they don't have to constantly keep the... No. All that matters, all that happens is when they, in the commercial vehicle, when they push on the brakes, that relieves the pressure in the system instead Mm. of adding pressure to the system like happens in your car. Okay. And that's just so that whenever, if something goes wrong, it automatically breaks. Exactly. Okay, that makes sense. It makes sense in the commercial vehicle. So I'm just saying like these kinds of, like I know it seems backwards here in this case, these kinds of systems do exist other places too where mm-hmm. you want the default to be stop. I don't know that that's necessarily the right call with a thrust reverser. Um, <laughs> but I'm just trying to like give a frame of yeah. reference where it's like it, it, these things do exist in, yeah, in, other, in other places. Because I was going to say it sounds backwards, but... Yeah, and, and the reason they did this was this ensured greater reliability for inadvertent opening of the reversers, but the way the electricity was fed through the DC bus, the reverser would not open in case the electrical bus was lost. So again, talking about oh. kind of like the brakes where like <laughs> uh, if, if, the, if the power went out, it wouldn't open. Yeah. So it still, it makes it a little safer than what we initially think, right? Yeah. I, I told you, Chris, this is a very involved <laughs> episode. This is a very no, no. technical We're on the journey. <laughs> so however, that being said, there was a modification issued that changed the electrical feed to the emergency bus. And this was done to help save electrical power by de-energizing the open-closed solenoid with the introduction of an open-closed limit relay. And this relay energized the open-closed solenoid only when there was a positive command effect. So when the reverser is not utilized, the actuator becomes non-pressurized. So they're trying to, all this is to say, they're just trying to make sure that the logic works so that you don't end up with the reverser accidentally opening so that there are fail safes in place to keep that reverser from opening in case electrical power is lost or in case there's not a pressurization in the system. They're just making, trying to install. These are all the fail safes that they put in to make sure that the actual, the, the thrust reverser does not open. Okay. Yeah. Cause they're like, Oh, well, basically your initial like instinct of, yeah, that doesn't seem like a good idea. They're like, well, this is the fail-safe for that. Right. There's fail-safes in place. Yeah. So it's like, okay, it's not so bad. And in fact, you know, they thought it was so safe that the manufacturer has like a fault tree, like where they work through like all the different possibilities, right? Uh-huh. To see if the thrust reverser would activate uncommanded. And before the modification, 
the calculated odds of this <laughs> I feel like C3PO. Uh, <laughs> uh, the calculated odds of the thrust reverser <laughs> happening were 10 to the power of 11 or 1 in 100 billion. Oh my. It's astronomically improbable that this would happen. I, I'm curious how they calculate that. But yeah, me too. <laughs> that maybe they have a C3PO themselves. <laughs> so this is considered Don't ever ex- tell me the odds. <laughs> yeah, that was waiting for it. There it is. <laughs> so of course, this is considered extremely unli- unlikely because the odds are above 10 to the power of 9. And in the United States, there's regulations. Uh, it's the FAR, FAR uh, 25.1309. What is that? Federal Air- Airway Regulation? Federal Airline Regulation? I've got my book right here. Hold on. It's the Federal Aviation Regulations. <laughs> So according to the Federal Aviation Regulations, Chapter 25.1309 uh, determines in brief that aircraft equipment items, systems, and installations, whether considered severally or in relation to other systems, are to be defined so that on the occurrence of any fault that might prevent the continuation continuation, continuation of a safe flight and the landing of the aircraft, the fault is to be classified as extremely unlikely if the fault occurring should be above the order of 10 to the power of 9. So even according to like the the regulations that are built, you know, they have a definition of what's considered extremely unlikely, and this exceeded that, mm. and then some. So after the modification, the manufacturer did not consider the possibility of the contacts of the secondary lock relay of the thrust reversal control system becoming stuck, and it would be a dormant failure, which means it would happen without being perceived. The diagram of the reverser's fault tree post-modification, even without taking into account a dormant failure, indicates that the probability of an inadvertent opening of the reversers is 10 to the power of 6 or 1 in 1 million, uh, which actually does not meet the FAR airworthiness requirements. Because the manufacturer anticipated that an opening of the reverser during takeoff was extremely unlikely, they determined it was not necessary to train for such a failure. Hmm. So remember, like I said, they did special electrical system modifications for the plane to be certified in Brazil, and those modifications, which is what we talked about, actually made this kind of failure more likely. So it went from a possibility of one in a hundred billion to a possibility of one in a million, which still That's very a lot unlikely. More though, yeah, but it's it's way way more likely, but still very unlikely. If it's a one in a million chance, you you know you take those odds every day. Like I, I can't even begin to imagine what we do every day. That's like there's a one in a million chance this could hurt you, and you're like, yeah, it's fine. Yeah. So investigators carried out tests on the secondary lock actuators of the thrust reverser control system. And they found that the secondary lock of the doors of the turbine thrust reverser showed inconsistency in their responses and had a lack of reliability. They had a performance much below the minimum acceptable to assure the system's safety and reliability and presented a share of contribution in the sequence of events that led to the non-commanded opening of the doors of the thrust reverser on the number two engine during the takeoff phase. So they're finding problems here, right? Even though mm-hmm. the you know upon investigation, the parts seem to be okay after the crash, you know, they're like, this engineer has this hypothesis and they're looking at it and they're like, oh, this stuff's not reliable. This, you know, these, all of this could theoretically have happened and seems like it did happen in this case. Yeah. The crazy thing to me is that what I said a little while ago, that this was considered so unlikely that they didn't train for this failure. Like, that, like that, that's never going to happen. Why even bother training it? Well, but but then you said it got the, the modifications they did in Brazil made it more likely and they still, right? Right. And they still didn't train for it. They still probably thought it was so unlikely it didn't it didn't matter. And they may not have calculated. I don't know for a fact. They may not have calculated the new odds until after this incident. Oh. Uh, I don't know mm. when that new calculation occurred, but it may not have happened until after. And it was just Brazil that they did these? Yeah. Every country, you know, has different standards and requirements for aircraft to be certified to fly in that country. And I don't know enough about the electrical engineering side of things to answer why Brazil had these specific requirements, but uh-huh. this is what they had to do to make the plane to be deemed uh, airworthy in Brazil. Hmm, that's weird. Maybe it made other things safer. But- right, exactly. There's, there's probably some other side effect that they were more concerned with that they wanted this done for. So based on the troubleshooting schematic manual for the aircraft, it's possible for a relay of the secondary lock to fail due to an internal fault caused by the wires to be connected to other relays. It informs that inductive loads, such as those found in the secondary lock actuator, are detrimental to the contact that commands them, particularly on de-energization, in case there is no protection diode, as is the case of the secondary lock actuator. It also assesses the possibility of existence of quick reverse cycles during maintenance services, 
where the reverser shells are opened and then commanded to be closed before the opening completes might compromise the contacts in the relays. The investigators conclude that it may be possible for a simple fault to exist due to melting of electrical contacts causing the continuous command of the deploy coil and causing of the inhibition alarms. So the one, one thing they said there I thought was really important and really stood out to me. Mm-hmm. It said that it's possible that if the reversers are commanded to open and then commanded to close before they fully opened, it could compromise these relays. So like in maintenance, if mm. someone's checking it and they're just like toggling it open, closed before, you know, letting it fully cycle, it could degrade the system and could have caused the contacts in the relays to fail, which would have caused the reverser to open in flight like this. My mom always used to yell at me in the car because I would like, because I fidget. You know this about me, Gus. Oh, I know it. Yeah. <laughs> I sit next to Chris uh, all the time. <laughs> uh, and when I was in the car and I was a kid, I was like, turn, you know, the window up and down, up and down, up and down, you know, or like uh, just the lock up and down, you know, it's like one of those things. So this is like, oh, you, I thought of it. You know how whenever you press, there's a lot of the truck trunks now when you press the button and it's, it closes automatically. Yeah. Yeah. If you push that and then pull it up or something or like, I don't oh, know. Oh, like, why would you do that? I know. Or like, or push it back up. So it's not actually, I don't know. What I was the thinking whole mechanism. was like, you know auto power windows where you like push it down and then it, it automatically starts rolling the window all the way down. You don't have to hold it anymore. Uh-huh. It's like if you tell it to do that and then you pull up to stop it and make it start uh-huh. rolling up like that kind of thing. Right. But it's the same yeah. thing where it's like there's an automatic system and you interrupt it and stop it until it. No, do the opposite now. Yeah. Oh, man. Anytime it, I'm getting out of an Uber that drives a van and they have one of those doors that shut I'm like, and he's like, no, no, don't touch it. I'm like, okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Same thing. I don't know if, if you. I don't know if you've ever been to Japan, but the taxi uh-huh. doors uh, close automatically, and they get very mad if you touch the doors and try to close them. <laughs> so yeah. to, there's signs all over them that's like, "Do not touch the door." Like the door opens <laughs> automatically, you get out, and the door closes automatically. They get they get very upset if you try. Which to is understandable because it can mess it up. As, right. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, very very similar, right? Don't interfere with something that's automatic. Let it finish, and then and then tell it to do the other thing. So. Now it's like, all right, now the investigators are trying to say, let's put all these pieces together, all this different electronic mumbo jumbo, and let's figure out how did this all come together? How did this all Mm -hmm. cause this incident to happen? So they hypothesize that during the takeoff run, remember the two auto throttle channel failures occurred with their warnings. Mm -hmm. And then these warnings were canceled and the takeoff continued properly because, you know, that didn't cause a risk to the operation of the aircraft. You know, the captain informed the auto throttle failure probably as a warning to the first officer to adjust the levers as needed. And during the takeoff run, at the moment of liftoff, the reverser of number two engine opened. So the way that this system worked, is there was a fail safe. If the reverser opened in flight, uh-huh. what would happen is the auto throttle would disable and the plane would automatically roll that engine back to idle. Mm. How's that a fail safe? So that it doesn't reverse. So, so that mm. then it's just in, then it's just introducing drag on that side of the plane. Yeah. It's not actually thrusting in reverse. Yeah. So it, it it keeps it from yeah doing the op going the opposite direction of what you want. But right. And remember, they didn't was, realize this exactly. That's exactly what was happening here. That's why the number two engine kept going back to idle, and the first mm. officer kept fighting it, trying to make it go back to maximum thrust. Oh. And remember. The, the warning saying the thrust reverser was deployed didn't illuminate. The only signal of abnormality oh, no. they had was the number two engine thrust going back to idle because the, no, there were no visual or audio warnings that went off. Yeah. The only, I, that or just the, the way it felt like the plane. Could you feel yeah. that? Well, I mean, it feels like asymmetric thrust. Yeah. It's probably more severe than normal because it's mm-hmm. a, the thrust reverser. But, you know, when it goes idle, it probably feels just like regular asymmetric thrust, maybe a little more drag than normal. Uh, but then, you know, when they start introducing that power back, that's mm-hmm. what, you know, makes it way worse. When they were, when this, all this happened, were they already past, uh, um, was it V1? Yeah, they were, uh, this, this happened right as they left the runway. So they're, okay. So it's too late to not take off. Correct. They have to take off. This happened, like I said, within 50 feet of the ground. Yeah, so it sounds like there's there's no way they could have, I don't know, saved this, right? If they had left the number two engine idle, they could have continued. They, they would have been an emergency, but they could theoretically have landed it. Okay, so but they could have taken off with just one engine. Yeah, it's not ideal. They're not supposed to. Uh, uh-huh. You know, their climb performance will be severely affected. But, you know, they could get a slow climb and circle back to the airport. Okay. A plane with two engines can still fly with one. Yeah. Okay. 
And I'm going I'm to read a little more here about their hypotheses, and then I'm going to give a little more detail about stuff that I learned here. So the lack of prior information, instructions, and training, remember, they didn't train for this, for this type of uh, abnormality, have encouraged the impulse of the crew members to try to push that lever forward. Due to the effort in advancing the lever, the engine one lever was also advanced, but at this moment, the reverser cycled and caused a quick reduction of the lever, bringing the crew member's hand along, which inadvertently led to the number one engine also being reduced. Remember I said number one EPR lowered for a little bit? Mm -hmm. It's because they had their hands on both throttles, and then the number two engine rolled back as a safety, and they accidentally pulled number one back at the same time because they had their hands on it. Oh, so like you say with one pulled back, as in it was like pulled back as in let off the thrust? Yeah, as in like the, the plane as a safety, you know, moved the throttle back to idle. And their hands were on mm. both, so when the plane pulled it back to idle, <laughs> their hand was on both uh-huh. throttle levers, so they pulled number one back too. And then they, Just you know, kind of inadvertently, because you're used to pushing, like, so you don't have asymmetrical thrust, you, like, are used to doing uh, like mirrored movements in the plane? Right, They're, they should both be moved more or less together. So, like, just, you know, it, this is just inadvertent, you know, the, yeah. the number one got, went idle because the plane was pulling number two to idle. So then, you know, one of the crew members advanced both levers again uh, with engine one staying below takeoff power and the lever of engine two being reduced immediately again. The levers were then pushed forward again. And this time, the cable that kept pulling the thrust lever back to idle was broken, (gasps) allowing the thrust lever to remain forward. And this is, you know, without any warning signals, it was humanly impossible for the crew members to identify what was going on and the loss of control that followed. So this is what I want to talk about. There was a cable attached to that number well it's attached to both throttles but in this case we're talking about the number two throttle that uh-huh. kept pulling it back that's this was the safety i was talking about you know it would pull the engine back to idle and then when the levers would close or i'm sorry when the when the uh, thrust actuator would close and be back to normal then it would stop pulling the the throttle to idle and that's when they could push it back up to full then the the thrust reverser would open again and then they would you know the lever kept coming back to idle i think the amount of force that was required to break this this cable, it was broken at a quick connect, was like it was a little over 600 pounds of force. And they said it was impossible for a person to break that by themselves. But what yeah. happened was one of the times when the reverser closed, the first officer pushed the throttles all the way to max power, and then the thrust reverser opened, and then the system started pulling on the cable at the same time that he was pushing forward, and oh, he was fighting so like- it. And then that's the combined forces put over 600 pounds of force on the cable, and that's what broke it. Yeah, so it was like opposite pulls. Yeah, it was like a tug of war, and then the rope broke. It's all happened so fast, but when you break it down moment by moment, it's like, it's nuts. (laughs) Yeah, this this all happened, remember, in less than a minute, like a minute from the time they started rolling their takeoff to the time they crashed. God, I'm just imagining, it's like the plane's like fighting with itself. Mm -hmm. And fighting with the crew. Yeah. So, you know... Overall, there was a lack of information, instructions in writing and practice, and this all contributed to the non-recognition of this abnormality. The unusual occurrence of the quick reduction of the lever on a particularly difficult phase of the operation, the non-occurrence of failure warnings, and the lack of cognizance and specific training for such an abnormality bring on surprise and distraction of the crew member's attention. So again, it's all these things lined up. You know, critical phase of flight, the warnings didn't go off. They didn't train for this because it was such a, you know, considered a remote possibility. Mm-hmm. And they all got distracted. There were no warnings. There's, right. Yeah, it's just. And then the release of the restriction of the lever of engine two at idle without the occurrence of the abnormality warnings strengthened the tendency in at least one of the crew members to try to recover the power of the engine. Because that's what you think. Your engine's idle. That's not where it should be. You try to put it back. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like, oh, you don't realize the rever- the thrust reverser's out. You're doing the exact worst thing. Yeah, but they, th- oh, my God. And again, this all happened in less, like a minute or less. So there's no time to really realize that this, this is yeah, what's going on. You don't have like time to troubleshoot really mm-hmm. in that moment, at least. Mm-hmm. You just have to know, oh, th- that's why the training is, yeah, you have to know, oh, this is, ha- this is probably happening. Here's what I do. You don't have mm-hmm. to, be, to be like, let's check and see what's, because they're 50 feet off the ground. Yeah, there's no time. And the lack of warnings and the difficulties that are characteristic of such an abnormality have diverted the crew member's concentration to thinking this was an autothrottle failure. Remember, the autothrottle failed on the takeoff roll. They probably thought the autothrottle was messing up, but it had deactivated because it needed to pull the throttle back to idle to save them. Oh, my. The occurrence of the autothrottle failure warnings and the lack of specific reverser opening warnings have strengthened the belief that they were experiencing an autothrottle failure. Like, that's what anyone would think in that case. Autothrottle's failing. It's making us crash 
fight it. That's and that's what it sounds like. Yeah, that's exactly we that's exactly and, what it sounds like. <laughs> and even even whenever we're like, oh well, you talk about like, well, one engine's not going, so that's why they're banking. I mean, that even makes sense. But right, it all seems like they they had the right thought process, and the warning saying what it really was wasn't even activating because it was also uh, failing. Like it's it's incredibly frustrating because you know it would have been difficult, but they could have theoretically saved it if things had gone a different way. If just one if. The failure, the warning had illuminated, or if they had left the engine idle, I don't know. There are a lot of little things, but I can't fault them for any of that. They thought they were doing the right thing. Mm. The reverse fault tree chart made by the manufacturer, considering the post-modification version, even not taking into account a dormant failure, indicated the probability of an inadvertent opening of the reversers is one in a million, which we talked about, which, you know, is a problem. The reverser unlocked indication system is inhibited at speeds higher than 80 knots and up to the height of 1,000 feet, exactly when the pilots would have needed this information the most. So like the reverser indication system, like a warning, wouldn't have even worked below 1,000 feet. <laughs> what? I don't know why. I, I, that's just bad. I don't. I, I, Isn't I don't, that when I'm, you would need it the most? Yeah, that's that's when you think it would be most critical. I mean, it, it is when it would be most, right? I mean, yeah, uh, when you're close to the ground, of course. The secondary lock actuators behave at a performance below the minimum acceptable to assure the safety and reliability of the system. The requirements that determine that each reverse system is to be provided with means to prevent the engine from producing power higher than idle power upon failure of the reverse system were not complied with, both in relation to the control system when the shells opened in flight and in relation to protection, uh, which became non-existent when the cable broke due to the pilot's action on the lever. So again, even the secondary safety of the plane automatically moving the engine to idle that failed because the pilots were resisting it and they broke the cable design faults, an insufficient assessment of the fault tree diagram and the guidance uh, to the operator not to train for this abnormality have indirectly contributed to the sequence of events that led to place the crew facing an unprecedented situation without the possibility of recognizing and responding properly to avoid the loss of control. Yeah. It doesn't seem like it's the pilots. It's, it's not their fault, right? It doesn't I mean, seem it like, like it. it's, it's the fuckers fault. Well, either the, either the manufacturer and, or <laughs> Sorry, yeah, no, I know what you're saying. <laughs> I tried not to laugh. Um, <laughs> it seems, it definitely seems like it's either the, in my opinion, the manufacturer uh-huh. and, or the Brazilian government that made them change, modify it. Correct. So, but I feel like if they made them modify it, it should have been on the manufacturer to, I don't know, f- change their system so that the modification but I guess I could be I guess I, I see why it's like oh it's expensive for, if they have to redesign the plane for every country right it's tricky you know where where do you draw that line so that that's why I think they both share responsibility in that regard so during this incident for three times the thrust lever of engine two was reduced and advanced such interventions on that lever have brought on the reduction of the thrust lever of the left-hand engine, impairing the aircraft's performance. Like we said, engine one rolled back briefly, too, by accident. Uh-huh. And then the non-return of the left-hand lever to take off thrust immediately has contributed to deteriorate even more to the aircraft's climbing capability. So engine number two was messing up. Engine number one went idle and then did not immediately go back to take off thrust. So they had, you know, they had less thrust than they needed. The condition under which the unusual abnormality presented itself to the crew and the lack of warning signals has rendered the intentionality of the action indeterminate. And furthermore, it was not possible to determine which of the two crew members has actuated the levers. So they don't know exactly who was you know, moving the levers. Mm-hmm. The lack of cognizance on the part of the crew members for insufficiency of warning signals and information about the abnormality has been a detriment for them to abandon the normal sequence of procedures, such as retracting the landing gear and actuating the autopilot in order to take the initiatives of prioritizing the solution of an unusual situation installed in the cockpit below safety height that eventually brought on loss of control of the aircraft, whereby it has also not been possible to determine which one of them took the initiative. Such facts render aspects indeterminate. So they're, 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 giving, they're giving a little bit of blame to the crew here, saying they inadvertently rolled back number one engine, didn't put it back to take off power, and that they probably should have retracted the landing gear and engaged autopilot. You know, obviously retract the landing gear to reduce drag so that you get better performance out of your uh, working engine. And if they engage the autopilot, then they could have focused their attention on troubleshooting more. I mean, yes, but I feel like there was so little time. It, it, it's, it's difficult to say. Hmm. That, like everything happened so quickly. 
The crew tried to manage the abnormality concurrently with control of the aircraft below 400 feet. Under such risk conditions, a power reduction occurred on the other engine, compromising the aircraft's performance. As a consequence, the crew was obligated to prioritize the thrust needs to the detriment of other procedures. Based on data collected from the flight data recorder, the lever of engine 2 was brought to maximum power position after the locking of the lever at idle position. Such locking occurred immediately after liftoff when the lever was reduced by itself to the idle position, staying locked for about 3 seconds. However, the system itself released the lever, inducing the first officer to bring it to full power position, even after having informed the captain about its locking. It should be pointed out the captain has not requested such action, having been informed about the locking, as well as the first officer not asking whether such an action should be done or not. So, saying that, you know, they kept putting engine 2 back up to full. The first officer never asked the captain if that's what should be done, even though he informed the captain about the locking. Uh, and the captain never requested it, but but also it seems like he, a natural reaction. Yeah, it seems like even if he had asked, he would have said yes. It, it, right? It's yeah, that's yeah. what they were trained to do. It's difficult to make that assumption, but it seems like most likely that is what would have uh, what would have happened. So there's a few recommendations as a result of uh, of this incident. Improve the quality of the analysis of all bulletins, regardless of their classification and determine that it is mandatory for the manufacturers to remake the fault tree analysis for every and any proposition of modification in any of the systems that may in some way interfere with the aircraft's airworthiness. So this is what we're talking about. Make that fault tree. Anytime you have to make a, a change like this, redo the fault tree and make sure that you still have enough redundancy and that you know failure is still a very remote possibility. Determine the possibility of a visual and external verification during pre- and post-flight inspections of the position of the mechanical locking systems of the secondary lock. Include a visual check in the aircraft's maintenance plan and in the external inspection prior to each flight. So just check those locks before every, as part of the pre-flight inspection to make sure they're working properly for the thrust reversers. Modify the flight warning computer so the reverser engine warning is classified as level 3, informing the crew through the master warning. Modify the flight warning computer so that the reverser engine warning is not inhibited and is informed to the crew during any phase of flight. So try to eliminate the possibility of these uh, alerts not reaching the crew. Eliminate the open-close limit relay, keeping the open-close side of the selector valve energized always, except when there's an actual command of the reverser. The reverser's secondary lock actuators are to be reanalyzed and have their reliability increased, including final tests of impedance and electrical resistance, prior to delivery and post-assembly on the aircraft. So again, more testing, make sure that, you know, there aren't any problems with this system. To define a primary maintenance process determining the failure modes of the secondary lock actuator, aiming to avoid the dormant failure of such components. So more maintenance, you know, get this on a schedule to make sure it's not going to fail. Mm -hmm. To determine an analysis and tests program for the secondary lock actuator, with the objective of explaining the causes of the contamination of the internal switches of such actuators providing an effective way to avoid it. Give more emphasis to the training sessions carried out on flight simulators in relation to the opening of the reversers in several phases of flight. So again, training. In initial and revalidation training sessions, emphasize the importance of not performing actions below 400 feet. So I guess that's just like training to tell the pilots uh-huh. to get more altitude before they do anything yeah before troubleshooting mm. yeah that makes sense yeah but they were trying to get altitude by turning <laughs> uh but they were still yeah i mean they were still climbing like think about it if they hadn't fought that number two lever they would have mm-hmm. continued climbing and gaining altitude yeah with just the one engine right yeah they kind of it made it worse by trying to immediately fix it mm. Include in the theoretical and in the simulator training a procedure for the case of non-commanded delay of one of the thrust levers during takeoff and climbing phases. Yeah, so just, I mean, I guess better troubleshooting for what to do when, you know, one of the levers rolls back to idle during uh, takeoff and climbing, which again kind of ties into gain altitude and then troubleshoot. Yeah. But that's it, TAM402. I think in the past we've actually had listeners ask us if thrust reversers have ever opened in flight. And I intentionally, I think I was very cagey about this in the past because I didn't want to potentially spoil this uh, this episode because uh, I, I figured we would probably be talking about this one at some point, which seems awful to have a, a thrust reverser open in flight when those should only happen when you're on the ground trying to slow down and stop yeah, when you, after you've landed. It's terrifying. I'm just trying to imagine what that must have been like for them trying to fight it yeah. and not realizing. Yeah, that in fighting it, they're actually making it worse. And I'll say this. This is... I think one of like two, you talked about uh, onlookers, you eyewitness testimony and how unreliable yeah. it is. This is like 
one of maybe I can what, two or three other times that it was actually accurate. Yeah, it's so wrong <laughs> most of like, the time. Yeah, most of the time it's completely false. And this is like they nailed it. And it's a good thing, I, I think, that they had those eyewitnesses because, remember, the initial inspection of these parts showed that they were working fine. Mm. It wasn't until they start hypothesizing and trying to see, like, what could theoretically have made this happen that they find, you know, this fault and they find this problem. Mm. You know, I don't know how this investigation would have gone if people hadn't seen it. I don't know if they would have dived in, you know, and done this deep dive to try to figure out if this was a possibility. I guess it was pro- the eyewitnesses were also probably people who worked on planes more new planes. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, then I think, yeah, you can take a little more, um, or you you think someone like that would be a little more reliable in what they're saying. Yeah, because they are at the airport taking off and then they see this plane struggling and, you know. Yeah, and maybe yeah. it was even other pilots who were waiting to take off. Oh, shoot, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know who the eyewitnesses were, but yeah, I hadn't thought about that till you said it. They were so low and right over the airport. This happened at takeoff. It very well was most likely uh, people involved in aviation. But yeah, that's it. Tam Flight 402. Like I said, check out, uh, follow us on social media at Black Box Down Pod. I'll post that image of the landing gear uh, in that destroyed bedroom on top of a destroyed bed. And that guy who's like who's looking at it. I don't know what he's doing. He's just like looking he over the side of it. On the right side of the bed. That. It, it looks like he's looking for his keys is what I think when I see that. Like, did I leave them over here? <laughs> Were they under the wheel? Or Yeah. I don't remember Man. this wheel being here. But yeah, uh, that's it for this episode. We'll be back next week with another one. Don't forget to check out our link tree on the social media. Mm-hmm. Like we mentioned earlier, we have new uh, merch that I think is great. And we also have something new. Yeah, we have a, a, a little supplementary uh, episode. We wanted to do something to thank to, as a thank you for everyone who subscribes to our premium or Rooster Teeth First. Uh, if you, you know... Uh, if you have the premium membership, we have a special uh, like Q and A episode that we uh, we posted. Uh, it's available on you know all podcast platforms. Uh, mm-hmm. We kind of like we took um, questions from social media and and uh, email submitted questions and kind of talked through the things that people wanted that were asking about or articles that came up and I don't know kind of break them down and discuss and yeah we're just trying to we're just trying to come up with a way as a thank you for everyone who supports us directly through that premium uh, if you if you're curious about that you can check out blackboxdownpod.com it's 2.99 a month uh, you get ad free episodes you get them early you get this uh, special supplementary episode and uh, you can keep listening whatever podcast platform you're already listening on and there will be more supplementary content too yeah this is just the first this, this is the start all right well thanks for listening everybody we'll see you next week bye bye <laughs>